trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us at this breathtaking point of inspiration where we gather to revel in wrong think. And I got to tell you, there is a fair amount of wrong think to revel in. So uh, take off your shoes and jump right in. By the way, we have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include GarageDoorProServices.com, MonticelloCollege.org, <clears throat> excuse me, LifesavingFood.com, and also HSLAmmo.com. Well, I don't know if you caught the news yesterday, but uh, Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers, was found guilty of January 6th seditious conspiracy. Now, this is by a Washington, D.C. jury, and this is uh, with the uh, federal government prosecuting them with virtually unlimited time and resources. But there's uh, why, why talk about January 6th, Brian? What are you trying to do? You're trying to defend what people did that was wrong? Not at all. But I'm also trying to point out that the, the whole January 6th narrative is being blown out of proportion and it's and the, the use of the term insurrection is intended to keep us from noticing and for that matter criticizing our federal our federal government for slipping off its leash and running wild while savaging everything in sight. And it's it's really remarkable. I, I can tell you just a couple of things about Stuart Rhodes' conviction. Um, he was found guilty by a jury yesterday of seditious conspiracy connected to the events on January 6th. Also, one co-defendant, Kelly Meggs, was found guilty of, of seditious conspiracy. Three others were acquitted of that charge. This was three other Oath Keepers. So in total, Rhodes was found guilty on three out of five counts, including seditious, uh, seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, and tampering with documents or proceedings. Meggs was found guilty on five counts out of six, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of, a pr- of an official proceeding, conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging any duties, and tampering with documents. I mean, that all sounds pretty serious, but wait till you hear some of the details behind those charges. Now, in closing arguments, the defense attorney said the government failed to prove the Oath Keepers planned to attack the Capitol or to interfere with the, the certification of the Electoral College votes on January 6, 2021. In fact, a defense lawyer said none of the more than 50 witnesses in this Oath Keepers trial testified that they heard any of the defendants discuss, or plan to storm the Capitol on January 6th. However, in the final rebuttal, U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler said that according to the jury instructions, the government didn't have to prove that they had a detailed plan to breach the Capitol and meet in person to discuss their alleged scheme. An implicit agreement and mutual understanding were enough to prove the defendant's conspiracy. I mean, that that sounds like it could be pretty open-ended, right? What did you talk about over Thanksgiving dinner or maybe over a beer after Thanksgiving dinner? Well, there's your conspiracy. Were you expressing displeasure with the government? Uh Uh-huh. See, you want to overthrow it too. Nestler told the jury that the three defendants who decided to take the witness stand to testify in their defense, Stuart Rhodes, Thomas Caldwell, and Jessica Watkins, allegedly lied. But it's important to not just ask whether they lied. Ask yourself why. 
because the truth is so damning, Nessler emphasized. Now, the government told the 14 jurors that the defendants deleted evidence that could have proven even further their plan to breach the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. James Bright, the attorney for Rhodes, asked the jury how the Oath Keepers could conspire as early as November 2020 to storm the Capitol on January 6th if the January 6th rally wasn't announced until late December of 2020. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. You know, who who was it that was inside the Capitol who opened the doors? I've seen the video. You can see it for yourself as well. Unknown provocateurs broke through Capitol doors, and, and, you know, that was a very organized group. But we also learned that there were the FBI did have agents within the Oath Keepers organization long before January 6th. And so, look, I can't say with certainty, yes, I know, there were government provocateurs who were the first ones through the doors. But we can't say that we don't know that either. And, of course, the federal government still is sitting on more than 14,000 hours of video surveillance footage that they refuse to release. But there's no doubt from, from the small bits of video that have come out that at some point there was someone inside the Capitol who walked to the magnetically locked doors, tried to open them, couldn't. This is, again, from the inside, looked up at the camera, gestured, and then miraculously the doors opened. Or at least the magnetic lock was turned off and he was able to open the doors and people started coming in. Police officers were actually guiding people in. This is many of the people who are now charged with trespassing, parading, or otherwise, you know, invading the Capitol. So there's a lot here that doesn't add up. Again, you know, for what it's worth, my take is this was all about clamping down on dissent and trying to to lay the foundation that anyone who dissents or anyone who questions whether or not uh, the 2020 election was on the up and up is somehow engaged in a seditious conspiracy against the United States. But here's the kicker. Do you realize how far federal prosecutors went to, uh, to get people, uh, you know, to indict people and to put people on trial. I have a, a, an incredible Twitter thread. Uh, thankfully, I've, I've got this all rolled up in one thread here. It's from Michael Tracy. And what it shows is that federal prosecutors used geofencing data. In other words, people's phone data, where were they located to equate presence with criminality? All they have to do is show, well, you were there, you were at the Capitol, whether you were inside or not. That presumes that you were engaged in some kind of criminal activity. Look, you may strongly disagree with the people who were protesting either peacefully or those who actually walked into the Capitol or the ones who broke into the Capitol. You can can disagree with them. But doesn't this seem like a little bit of a stretch to try to charge everybody to put hundreds of people, you know, in jail and keep them there for more than two years? Well, nearly two years, I should say. In Michael Tracy's tweet, he talks about how the federal public defender convincingly argues that the FBI used an unprecedented modern-day general warrant to seize personal data of any person who could have been in the approximate vicinity of the Capitol on January 6th, defending democracy by obliterating bedrock civil liberties. And this is, uh, this is from a legal document that talks about how the first step was a true dragnet conducted by Google at the government's direction. The FBI 
commandeered Google to search through millions of private accounts to determine if any of them contained data of interest. So the warrant was therefore unconstitutionally overbroad, a modern-day general warrant. At least it should be impermissible under the Fourth Amendment. There was never any particularized probable cause cited by the FBI, making it certain that the searches were conducted on people who committed no crime whatsoever. And rather than establishing any basis for probable cause that the subjects of the search had committed a crime, the government relied on hypothesis and conjecture that merely equated presence at the Capitol with criminal activity, bizarrely invoking the pandemic in its reasoning. This is from one of the government's affidavits. Additionally, the government's explanation or application rather for the geofence warrant relied on assumptions to equate presence at the Capitol with criminal activity, hypothesizing, quote, because of the pandemic, security surrounding the Capitol in preparation for the inauguration, the security surrounding the Capitol for the protests of the certification, and the limited scope of the geographic area covered by this warrant, there will probably be no tourists or bystanders to be found in any of this data. In other words, to obtain its general warrant and seize the personal data of thousands of people without establishing any particularized probable cause that they had engaged in criminal activity, the government simply equated presence to criminality. In other words, because the government sought identifying information for any device for which Google was 68% confident the device was somewhere within the geofence at a single moment during the four-and-a-half-hour geofence period, again, the government equated presence to criminality. Now, because of this, because this January 6th investigation is the most important in the history of human civilization or something, and democracy, trademark as we know it, hangs in the balance, you can expect these brazen precedent-setting abrogations of the Fourth Amendment to be largely ignored or maybe outright cheered. By the way, Rebecca Fish, Assistant Federal Public Defender in Tacoma, Washington, did an excellent, thorough job on this motion, which is linked in the uh, Twitter, the Twitter thread. I mean, th- look, you weren't there, maybe. Maybe you didn't, uh, you know, you don't, you don't care. You're not, uh, you're not a MAGA American, and that's fine. That's fine. But the point here is, if you allow government to come off its leash and to run amok... And you're sitting back enjoying it, uh, watching it chew, you know, on these Trump supporters who allegedly broke into the Capitol. You're establishing a very dangerous precedent that it will, you know, one day come back and be used against you. It's just a matter of the right people being in power. This is why we have to keep government strictly limited and keep it on its leash. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to give a special thanks to Garage Door Pros for being a sponsor of this program, for helping make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. And if you live in St. George or Cedar City or Mesquite, Nevada or Colorado City, Arizona, this is the local company you should be calling for installation, service and repair of garage doors. You can reach them at 435-525-2773. I'd also recommend maybe go onto their website, garagedoorproservices.com, and see what their customers are saying about them. I can tell you this, the reviews are glowing and for good reason, because this is a company that takes their customer service very seriously. So if you need 
installation, service, or repair of your garage door, now you know where to go. GarageDoorProServices.com. So it's a fact of human nature. All of us struggle to admit when we're wrong. But at the same time, no one seems to have a tougher time admitting fallibility than the expert class. I got to thank my friend Chicago Ron for sending an article my way about uh, are progressive experts fallible? Yes, but don't tell them that. This is from uh, Claudio Grass from the uh, Mises Institute. And it is a remarkable, remarkable column. He says, it can be argued that the world has reached the sorry state it's in today, largely because academics, politicians, distinguished experts, and recognized authorities did not have the humility to admit their own mistakes, or at least recognize the limits of their knowledge. Now, of course, this is far from a new affliction in societies and political systems. Hubris was among the most terrible sins that the ancient Greeks warned against. And there have been far too many narcissists in positions of power to count since the emergence of the first organized societies. In other words, people who believe they know best, not just for themselves, but everyone else too, are naturally attracted to roles that would allow them to impose their will, their morality, and their values on their neighbors. However, one can also argue that the problem is much more prevalent today than at any other time in our history. The modern news landscape, both mainstream and social media, the supercharged propaganda machines of all developed nations, and our public education system ensure that dangerous figures will hardly be challenged by anyone once presented to the public as de facto recognized and widely accepted authorities. Now, this is also true of politicians, but things are infinitely more perilous when it comes to science. The average citizen can more easily question a political stance directly, whereas it can be impossible to judge the merits of a scientific one without detailed and specific knowledge. Therefore, it's much easier to sell any academic, from professors to junior researchers, as an authority, one that must be obeyed and never questioned. They can freely give us all advice on how to live our lives, and they can even dictate policy, despite the fact that that usually kind, that kind of thing tends to have side effects in areas they have absolutely no clue about. Once placed on their pedestals, they become anointed. They don't even have to share their qualifications, their accomplishments, or testimony from their peers. Their professional records are irrelevant. Well, their failures at any rate. After all, how could you, average Joe, even begin to use your untrained, unspecialized brain to judge the particulars of their CVs or their research? After all, what do you know about climatology or about infectious diseases or macroeconomics? Isn't it hubris on your part to dismiss the decades of dedication and work that someone else invested in a single subject and to believe you know better? Now, Claudio Grass says these would be fair arguments if we lived in an unbiased world where open debate and independent thinking were actually encouraged. In that world, multiple experts would engage in public exchanges and challenge each other by presenting relevant, contradictory findings and evidence for different theories. And every viewpoint would be explored and scrutinized in a grand competition of ideas. Those hypotheses and models that matched real-life observations and had more accurate predictive value would be promoted to theories. And only then could we base our policy upon policymaking rather upon them. But just as easily, old ideas would be consigned to the ash heap of history once better ideas came along. This is the scientific method, the product of reason. Everything else we see today is the product of a cult mentality. And it yields the results one would expect. 
catastrophically, catastrophically wrong theories with devastating consequences for entire nations, even the entire world. In fact, he says we're seeing much of this play out in real time today. The demented fanaticism of the West and its leaders' monomaniacal obsession with the green agenda have led to an energy crisis like no other. In Europe, guided by expert advice, the policies of the last decade and the premature transition away from fossil fuels have left most countries with almost entirely dependent upon imports. Skyrocketing electricity bills have already crippled countless households, and this self-inflicted crisis even has the potential to cost actual lives this winter. Another area where this phenomenon is painfully obvious is the dismal science. The field of economics has arguably produced some of the most dangerous authorities the world has ever seen. Once placed in a position of power, in a central bank or in a finance ministry, for instance, the chaos they can wreak is frightening and truly lasting. Claudio Grass says this is because the general public really has no understanding of even the most basic economic principles and no grasp of monetary history, and is justifiably intimidated by the jargon used. This is why central bankers can deflect the blame so easily each time their policies go awry, and why respected economists can sell nonsensical but popular ideas as fact, just as we saw with modern monetary theory. Now, there is a rare exception that can be found in Austrian economics. Economists of this school understand very well that the economy is an extremely complex living organism and that there is no such thing as a homo economist or economicus, rather, a perfectly rational actor that behaves exactly as a model predicts. No, there are no such creatures. We only have humans to work with, for better or for worse. As Walter E. Block put it in a recent article, I think the steadfast refusal of Austrians to engage in economic predictions is consonant with our limited powers. We can explain economic reality and understand quite a bit of it, but unless all else is constant, which it never is, we cannot predict, at least not qua economists. Intellectual modesty is of great value. He says, do I predict that one day mainstream economists will come to see the error of their ways in this regard? Well, I hope so. But he says, as an Austrian economist, I make no predictions either way. If I could put that in the words of Dirty Harry, man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> and that's, that's the beauty of uh, Austrian economists. Anyway, I hope, to, I hope you find that uh, useful and enlightening. Why is it that the experts have such a hard time admitting it? Why do politicians have such a tough time admitting that they're wrong? See, to me, that's a much easier one to explain. I think that comes down to, well, if I admit that I'm wrong, people might lose confidence in me. They might, they might stop believing in me. It's kind of like the emperor's new clothes. They might see that I'm naked, and they might, you know, point a finger and laugh. And so politicians just spin, and they, you know, sidestep, and they tap dance, and you know, I, I think the best example of this is uh, Dr. Fauci underwent seven hours of deposition recently. And, and the words from, from at least one lawyer who was there, he's, he's not giving a lot of details because he says, look, the transcript is coming out. You can, you can read it for yourself there. But he said the remarkable thing about all seven hours of Dr. Fauci's deposition was how much the guy who embodied science just couldn't remember. I don't recall that. I don't know. I don't know if we were working with, uh, with uh, you know, social media companies or whatever to try to suppress points of view. 
I'm sorry, but that's a weaselly little man trying to cover his weaselly little behind. And the sooner this guy can be shown the exit, the better. But instead, you know, here he is making the rounds on the talk shows over the weekend. Dr. Fauci, do you think we'll have to close the schools, you know, once uh, once uh, kids come back from, from Thanksgiving break or from Christmas break? Well, I don't know. I really haven't thought about whether I should tell you, you know, this is how it's going to be. I don't mean to be rude, but my advice for Dr. Fauci is shut up, sit down, and if we need you, we'll call you. In fact, why don't you go sit in the corner? Why don't you face the corner? Here. I have a lovely little hat I'd like you to put on your head. Yes, it's pointed, isn't it? Be careful, that, that point is sharp. Like I say, we'll call you if we need you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Look, I realize I'm on a little bit of a tear today. In fact, I will just come right out and admit, I'm really not at my best because uh, I've, I've, I've got a burr under my saddle. What can I say? I'm, I'm seeing a lot of injustice and I'm seeing a lot of things go on that uh, really are, are disturbing. In fact, they're beyond disturbing. They're actually pretty upsetting. And so I apologize. I'm not my normal, rational, cool and collected self. Yes, yeah, Mr. Cucumber here, you know, I... Uh, I'm ticked. And and maybe that's you know that's a lapse on my part. Look, I have I have the utmost confidence in what is right and what is wrong. I have the the greatest confidence in the idea that the the greater good, you know that we're always hearing about freedom is that greater good. And so when people tell you, "Well, you need to give away some of your freedoms, you know, for the greater good of everybody else." They're wrong. Sorry if that sounds arrogant, but they are. They're wrong. You know, the future of freedom rests on our willingness to teach its principles and practices to our children. In fact, I have an excellent article here from John Conlon. This was published on American Greatness. Politics might be downstream from culture, but everything is downstream from K-12 through education. He says, imagine you're barreling down the highway and an accident happens a few feet in front of you. Your ability to respond and avoid a collision is very limited. You'll probably have very few choices, and it may be that none of them are good. Now, imagine the same scenario, but this time the accident happens hundreds of feet in front of you. Now your ability to respond and the choices available are more plentiful. Politics is kind of like this, too. There are the here and now activities and battles and the far longer-term preparation of both plans and people's minds. Now, the here and now battles offer limited options. The longer term offers many more choices for shaping people's thoughts. And since the longer term, sooner or later, becomes the here and now, success in the longer term actions will sooner or later significantly impact success in the here and now. In many ways, the war can be won or lost, like it is now, before it even begins. Now, his point is conservatives face the same reality, and after their pitiful showing in the midterms, it's clear they need to extend their planning horizons. Far too much effort and precious resources are spent on the here and now, and we can see how that has worked out for the past hundred years or so. Even when we win, in quotation marks, it just slows the tide. We've effectively abandoned the long term, especially the public K-12 through education and 50 million young minds that are shaped by it. 
And then we're surprised when the here and now offers us few chances for success. He says it's far easier to help instill the truth in young minds than it is to try to change the minds of adults. Every marketer shilling for things from toothpaste to beer knows this reality. Now, John Conlon says, so we have to seriously address the issue of public K-12. through First, the bad news. The public K-12 through system is, in reality, hundreds of systems. In total, they consume about half of every single state's spending. There are vested interests built upon vested interests ad nauseum. So there's no way to change it since it doesn't really exist. Any type of top-down directed change is destined to fail. And from a big-picture perspective, the school choice movement has been a dismal failure. The Leviathan and those layered vested interests have never and never will allow this to succeed in any significant fashion. Ain't happening. And the past few decades have proved this beyond any doubt. Sadly, many in the school choice movement don't really want to make the significant changes, but simply want to replace who's running things. Now, this might be positive, but it's not nearly enough. Now, John Conlon says that doesn't mean you shouldn't run for school board or do any other thing that has a chance of improving the present situation. But he says these kinds of changes by themselves won't be enough. This multi-pieced Leviathan is incapable of change in any reasonable period of time, and continuing to lose multiple generations of children is simply not an option. A free country can't survive this output indefinitely. Now, the good news There is a ripeness to the moment, and right now seems very ripe. Now is the time to act, perhaps in ways never before considered. And he says, for this we need Republican donors and all who value freedom and liberty. Are you listening? Billionaires who talk about giving your fortunes away to put their money where their mouths are. He says, continuing the present system design where a respected organization opens a single school, one at a time, greatly limits the impact we can have. It's time-consuming and impacts only a tiny slice of the market. A far better design is one in which we offer scholarships to individuals to attend any school that uses a good curriculum, which we can define. At the beginning of this process, we'll probably have a lottery system as demand is certain to far exceed ability to fund. Now, this will be a good thing as it will show the general public the tremendous unmet need and prepare their thinking for someday making this the model for all public K-12 funding. As for the schools, he says they probably don't exist yet, but they will. It's not if you build it, they will come, but rather if we fund it, they will leap from the ground. We let others create the schools, hundreds and hundreds of them, and all we do is provide scholarship funding. $10,000 per student should get the job done. Perhaps a single teacher wants to start a school. Great. Perhaps five or ten teachers want to get together and form one. Super. Perhaps a handful of freedom-loving citizens with an interest in bettering the world will step to the plate. Wonderful. Perhaps they do this to make money. Magnificent. He says, I don't claim to know every possible solution, but I know the system that will find them, and that is the freedom of the marketplace. We design a system to let a thousand flowers bloom. In addition, we build a small staff to review and accredit potential schools. Obviously, there needs to be some kind of quality control. And we don't just do this in the inner cities, but we do this everywhere. John Conlon says we want every citizen to hear about these schools. We want every citizen to see the incredible demand our lotteries uncover. 
We want every citizen to hear about the incredible successes these schools and our curriculum provides. In this way, we can prepare the politics to support changing K-12 funding. From one of funding the school establishment to one of funding children. But he says right now this has little chance of becoming reality, and thus we must prove the superior nature of this design by at first doing it ourselves. Once we've accomplished this, the $15,000 plus spent per child in K public K-12 through will become available to all parents, and we can fold up shop. Until then, we need to take charge and get this going. Today. Right now. And he says for that, we need money. The future of our country truly does rest on this success. The present output of public K-12 through is driving the destruction of the freest, wealthiest, most tolerant country the world has ever seen. We can't stand idly by and do nothing. This model can be exported around the globe. The only hope for many countries is to create a wave of freedom, rule of law, in equal justice under the law, etc., via their children's education. Everyone can't simply immigrate here. Their countries must be fixed, and education is the only possible means of doing so. So John Conlon says fighting in the here and now is, of course, the requirement. But the long term is where the war is won, and it's won or lost with the children. So he says, please step to the plate and help us win what is truly an existential war for our children. Now, maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe that's news to you, maybe not. But I think it's really powerful. And it makes me think of it. I got an email from Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute. Uh, I think this was over the, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend. And it talked about, uh, yes, it's okay to brainwash your kids. And it actually told the, the story of parents who uh, were raising kids behind the Iron Curtain. And when they were able to, uh, to get to freedom, when they were able to get to a non-communist controlled country, as they're visiting with the authorities in, in the new country, as you know, they're kind of having an entrance interview, the authorities were actually quite amazed at how their kids absolutely debunked and, and would not hold to any of the communist dogma that uh, had been programmed into their classmates and programmed into you know, their, their contemporaries. And they asked him, how, how did this happen? How are your kids so well informed? And the answer was, every day when their kids would come home from their government-controlled schools, their parents would spend time with them debunking and deprogramming them from the official lies. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can do this. The Tuttle Twins, by the way, which Connor Boyack uh, you know, has, has uh called into existence wonderful series wonderful uh, program to help kids understand the basics of liberty natural rights you know free market economy and so forth liberty classroom is another good example of of uh, something that that can help you and your kids but the key is as was pointed out in this article by john conlon it's a lot easier to teach young minds correct principles early on than it is to try to go back and reteach adults and help adults unlearn false ideas that were implanted in their heads when they were school kids. I know, there's work involved. Well, I'm a busy person, I have a living to make, and so forth. Yes, I understand. And yet I would ask you, how important is it that upcoming generations have the freedoms you and I have enjoyed? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a special thanks to my sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, LifesavingFood.com, and of course, MonticelloCollege.org. I do appreciate everything they do to uh, make this program possible. And I want to give a special thanks to there. I, I, I don't say this nearly often enough, but I, I have a, a small cadre of, of listeners who have been now for the better part of two years, a little over two years, have been uh, monthly making a five or a ten dollar donation. And you can do this via my anchor account. You can you can do this uh, via, you know, my my Patreon account. I don't push this often. Because frankly, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm, I'm making a living. But, uh, but I do appreciate everybody who finds value in this and, and in some ways says, look, you know what? I want to support what you're doing. Thank you so much for doing this. And please know, I treat those funds as sacred money. And I believe that uh, they are to be used for the purpose of spreading the message of liberty, giving encouragement to people who are, you know, realizing, my gosh, we've got to stand up and we've got to, We've got to uh, to be a, a force for what's right and what's good. So thanks to everybody who is helping me do my part, and hopefully I'm helping you do your part as well. Now, isn't it interesting, though, some people get really irritated when you bring up freedom, the masses in particular. It's like they're kind of trained. Well, you're talking about freedom. You must be some kind of a radical or extremist or far right. Rah, rah. You know, there's all kinds of little buzz, buzz phrases that... You know, they'll use to to dismiss you. But if you still are willing to stand up and speak out and live your life as a free individual, I'm guessing it's because deep down inside, you have arrived at the conclusion that the best things in our life depend upon liberty. And sometimes it's frustrating to see how many people, you know, take it, either take it lightly or just like, no, it's scary. People will call me names. I don't want to do anything. I know J.B. Shirk, in his recent article, Some Will Run and Some Will Stay, talks about how a lot of clear-eyed, hard-working, patriotic Americans are down in the dumps right now. And understandably so. The midterms were an utter disappointment. Midnight mail-in ballot halls completely upended elections, transforming almost certain MAGA victories in Arizona and elsewhere, elsewhere rather, into uphill legal battles likely to suffer slow strangulation in establishment-coddling courts. He says, if America had properly functioning democratic elections where only legal citizens voted secretly and securely after first establishing their identification, Republicans would have a hundred-seat margin in the House of Representatives. Instead, centrist Dullard McCarthy will lead a threadbare majority ripe for rancor and future Democrat flipping. Now, he goes into some of the political... uh, intrigue that's going on. I'm going to skip over that part. I do link to the article in the, in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. But one of the things he points out is he says, I, I get why people are depressed. You know, when you have people like Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell and so forth, all working against you as rhinos. He goes, these aren't easy times or pleasant times for good people. Monsters prowl, darkness creeps, peace slinks away. So he says, I'm not here to give you a false hope or abracadabra of what's happened the last few weeks into some comforting, uh, comfortable bed of fragrant roses. Quite the opposite, he says. In fact, he says, I think you're alive today for a reason. And the faster you come to that reason, the faster you come to that realization, 
the faster our country can come back from the brink. As Lieutenant uh, Colonel Frank Slade would say, well, gentlemen, when the crap hits the fan, some guys run and some guys stay. Well, guess what time it is? J.B. Shirk says, now think of the future you want for America and then steel yourself for the unavoidable pains coming our way. He says, if you've ever had a good coach or mentor or drill sergeant pushing you to succeed, then you probably have heard some variation of this advice. Where or When you are not training, someone somewhere else is. And when you meet that person face-to-face, you will lose. Now, you can take that truth to the grave. This world can be cold and unforgiving, and the only way to survive and persevere is to accept the reality that struggle is with us always. Struggle, in fact, gives us tremendous purpose and personal meaning and may, counterintuitively, put us on the surest path toward true happiness. What we must work hardest to obtain and what comes out at the, or what comes rather at the stiffest cost, what causes us pain, also provides the purest reward. I don't know about you, but I sometimes need to hear that. Now, J.B. Shirk says there are a lot of evil, demonic people on the other side pushing their one-world government. Marxist, corporate, godless agenda down our throats. And they've been at this game for over a century and many millennia longer, if we're being honest. Do you think they're going to give up when we win a battle or two? Of course not. They just keep on going, inflicting their cancerous sores of division and heartache wherever and whenever they can, and salting the earth until good people finally fall down and give up. Their endless march of misery is powered by their malevolent nature. You know they are training every day, all day long, to crush your will and enforce their totalitarian New World Order. So he asks, is it reasonable to expect that these Marxist marauders will surrender simply because we recognize their evil manipulations for what they are and desperately wish them to leave us alone? Well, the answer is certainly not. They will never, ever leave us alone in peace. They will push and prod, take and steal, divide and conquer until they get what they want. And if you're not training yourself to beat back their onslaught to the best of your abilities, when you meet these monsters face to face, they will succeed. There's nothing more potent that you can do today than get your mind right for the road ahead. He says you have to accept this civilizational contest as a war of attrition that cannot be won overnight or in one election. This fight for individual freedom against state tyranny will remain a constant struggle, testing our faith, courage, and commitment. And as is often the case, he says good training requires mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual preparation. You must keep yourself educated and remain situationally aware of what's going on in your community and broader surroundings. You must strive to be healthy, plucky, intrepid, and strong. You must gird yourself for tough losses, unexpected setbacks, and the certainty that things will not always go as planned. And you must find a way to live beyond this material world by finding sustained meaning in the pursuit of reason, virtue, and truth. Three blessings often granted when you simply listen to what God has to say. Now he says, if you do these four things each day, if you pursue them with full hearts and determination, I promise you that you will not lose. That's quite a promise. J.B. Shirk says, look, our enemies don't care that we are tired. Our enemies do not care that we suffer. Our enemies do not care that we are sad. When they come knocking, you can choose to give them what they want or stand up and refuse to surrender. 
But he says, train yourself now for that day. Find meaning in our current struggles. Decide right now that when trouble comes, as it always does, others may run, but you will stay. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there, and you feel free to reject it if it makes you uncomfortable, but the fact that you're listening to this program, the fact that you would even entertain the idea of listening to some radical like me, probably is a strong indication that you are one of those people who is not content to just run with the masses and seek safety in the crowd. Now, I'm not trying to tell you anybody else who does is some kind of a moral deficient. I'm just saying it's scary. It really is. It's terrifying, and people don't want to have their name besmirched. They don't want to be called names or otherwise, you know, have, you know, their motives questioned, which people are trained to do. If someone stands up for freedom, ah, you're one of those John Birchers, huh? They make the crazy sign, you know, circling their finger around their temple. What if you were born for this time? In fact, I'm going to expand this and make an even bigger what if. What if the cause of freedom is a cause that God is absolutely a part of? What if it was his greatest gift? But it's not just something that, well, here, I'm just going to bestow this on you and everybody have fun with your freedom. But it's a gift that requires constant work and vigilance and willingness to sacrifice in order to claim it, use it, defend it, and and perpetuate it into the future for those who will follow us. I'm thinking right now you're, you're feeling one of two things. You're either feeling uncomfortable that I've brought God into the conversation or you're feeling a sense of, wow, when you put it that way, suddenly it seems like this, is, this really is a cause that I should be getting behind. And, and my point is just simply this. Okay, I don't, I don't want to sound preachy, but I don't think that any effort to either maintain or otherwise advance the cause of liberty can actually work. I don't think it will see success unless there is some kind of reliance on God to help guide that effort. And I would point to the American founding as a really prime example of what that looks like. Individuals with moral clarity and a desire to, uh, to enjoy the blessings of liberty, not just for themselves, but for those who would follow them, they put their trust in God. How'd that work out for them? This is The Brian Hyde Show.